March 29th. It'd be a great day for you to serve. And honestly, just echoing what Brian said, if you're a person who likes ideas, you're an idea person, they could use you. They could use you. Well, one other element just for our family to be thinking about is um, Dee McGinley. Most of you probably know Dee. She usually sits right up here. Okay, Bill and Dee McGinley. So yesterday, as it turned out, um, Dee had a bit of a medical incident. Um, she may have had a stroke. Um, they are still trying to figure that out right now. And so Dee is in the hospital. Um, I just spoke with her before church this morning. Uh, she was admitted last night. She'll be there through at least tomorrow. And um, I want to encourage you to reach out to Dee. I want, you, I want to encourage you to do that. And it, it's very easy to do. Just go through Facebook. It, reach out to Dee through Facebook and let her know. If you're not her friend already, it's McGinley, M-C-G-I-N-L-E-Y. Is she on there as Judith, Judy, or Dee? I can't remember right now. But, but go to my Facebook page, and she's one of my friends, okay? So find Dee McGinley, and just send her a note that you're praying for. But if you do that, I want you to be prepared for something. If you reach out to Dee and let her know you're going to be praying for her, you need to be prepared that she's going to pray for you, and she's going to let you know that. So that's a good thing, right? So reach out to Dee, encourage her. If you happen to be by the hospital, go by and see her. You don't have to be there long, but just go in and, and, and see her. Just ask at the front desk for her name, and they'll tell you where to go, and just walk in and say hi, that you're praying for her. Maybe pray for her if, if you feel comfortable doing that, and then get out the door. Just that, that quick visit can be very encouraging in these kind of times. Well, lots of things we can be praying for as a church, and I think it's good for us to do that as a body. This is not a time filler. It's not a transition. It really is a moment for us to, to come together and pray to the Lord that he might lead us, provide for us, and show us his will. So let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We know that when we gather here, Lord, that you're with us. You are, you are in our midst, as we'll see today. We welcome your presence, Lord. This is no gathering of people. This is your bride, your body, the building that you are putting together. Lord, a group of people called out to you, called out for you, called out from this world to be your hands and feet and your presence in this fallen world. So, Lord, use us in this way. We, we do pray for March 29th, Lord, when we'll be over there that day and be, and be showing your love. I pray that even now that you be working out details in people's lives, that we would cross paths and we could tell them about you, that we can share with others, Lord, your love and your care and your real presence. Lord, use us, and today we ask that you'd speak to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Open up your Bible, if you have it today, to the book of Revelation. And I want to take you back 20 years. We could go further than that and probably find other instances like these, but we're going to go back 20 years and two months ago. It was, Jan it was December 31st, 1999. Do you remember that date? Do you remember what was supposed to, could possibly be happening the next day? It was Y2K. Now, those of you that are like 25 or younger, 
or maybe even 30 or younger, you have no idea what I'm talking about unless you've seen it like in weird reports about the 90s. So here's what happened. As I understand it, in my limited understanding, there was a lot of concern that the computer systems were going to struggle when the clock turned forward into 2000. Because supposedly the programmers hadn't thought about this problem. And when 99 became 00, I guess all the computers were going to think it was the year 1900. And so they were, you know, we're going to be riding on horses and we were going to be like, you know, no electricity and no lights. And the computers would be like, well, there can't be electricity. It's January 1st, 1900. And so the world was kind of in a panic. Do you remember that? And I mean, there were books written. There were television programs. Churches were having gatherings where people would be told how to prepare for Y2K. Now listen, you might have been a person that stockpiled some food and some other things, and and that's okay, all right? I'm not here to make fun of you, all right? But I'm here to make fun of us a little bit for the way that we will panic so quickly. Somebody wisely said all it takes is one person to start a mob. That's all it takes. One person cries wolf, and we will run, uh, just scared of our minds that something's going to happen. I had a friend during that time, and he was a very He was a very wise man, a very rational man. I respected him greatly. And one day he invited me over to his house in December of 1999. And we were talking about the Lord and talking about our lives and our families and everything else. And through the course of the evening, he walked outside with me and and we went back into his backyard where he had a brand new shed. As I recall, it was a 10 by 10 foot shed that he had had, he had had built for him, delivered there onto his property. We walked up to it, and, and he reaches into his pocket, and he says, hey, I want to show you something. I'm like, okay. He pulls out this set of keys and begins unlocking these locks on his shed. Now, in my mind, it was about 15, but it probably was two or three, okay, and a big chain, you know, so I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but he had all these locks on this shed. And I'm thinking, you know, what's he got to show me? A new snowblower? You know, a new tractor? What is it? So finally, you know, he unlocks these bolts and these chains and, you know, turns off these alarms and all this stuff. And he, and he opens up the door. And I just remember my breath being taken away. First by the sight of what I saw and then the smell. It was a 10 by 10 foot shed. I did the calculations this morning. In that shed were probably 104 five-gallon containers of gasoline. He had lined the inside of his shed. It was, as I remember in my mind, every single spot, like rows, like like a military platoon lined up of five-gallon containers of gasoline. And I went on Amazon today and got the dimensions of a five-gallon gasoline tank and a 10-by-10-foot shed. You could put 104 five-gallon containers, and it was full of gasoline. Here's what, he was prepared, I guess. It's, it's like, what is that? Five times whatever, 20-something, 104 gallons of gasoline he had there, whatever the number is. I just lost track of my numbers. Some of you mathematical people can help me later. But it was filled with gasoline. He was ready. Do you remember that night watching TV? 
I remember, you know, the thing is, it all happened in Australia 24 hours earlier. You realize that, right? We knew nothing was going to happen, but still we stayed up, Nancy and I, that night to see what would happen when it turned January 2000. And what happened? Nothing. Nothing. You know, I wonder if that guy's still out of his car now, you know, putting the gasoline in his vehicle. <laughs> we have this problem. We, we, we are so quickly convinced that things are going to spin out of control. Listen, that's what's happened in the book of Revelation. Well, no, that's what's happened in the world that the book of Revelation was written to. That's the purpose. That problem is the purpose for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not to prepare you to wow your friends with your ability to identify things that are going to happen. That's not the book of Revelation. That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is meant to bring you hope. It's meant to, to increase your hope, your understanding, your knowledge that God is completing his plan. And you can relax and let him work out his sovereign plan. Some of us are really good at worrying. And even though you're very good at it, I mean, you've had 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years to practice it, and you are really good at worrying, aren't you? And it accomplishes nothing. Nothing. Remember Jesus' words? Can you, can you add a, a, a moment to your life? Can you add an inch to your height? Can you do, does your worrying accomplish anything? The book of Revelation, chapter 1. Let's jump in at verse number 9. And remember what this is. This is, this is a book of, of revelation, of revealing, of unveiling. The book of Revelation is Jesus Christ pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see what he's going to do, how he's going to accomplish his plan. We call this eschatology. And I, I, all along the way, I want to give you a little taste of eschatology, and I'm going to do that in just a minute. But first, I want to read the Word of God. I'm going to jump into verse number 9. We know from verse number 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So I'm going to read it, okay? Trusting that God's going to bless. But also, and blessed are those who hear. So that's us. That's all of us. We're going to hear it. And who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So let's read at verse number 9 through the end of the first chapter, and then we'll talk about what it means. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. That, by, by the way, that word book is literally scroll. Okay, it's what that is. But write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum 
and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this is an example of a type of literature. It's called an apocrypha literature. It's, a, it's an example where of, of, it's the only New Testament book we have like this. We have Old Testament apocryphal writings like Daniel and Ezekiel and parts of Isaiah. This is the only New Testament. And that word apocryphal does not mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean nuclear bombs. That's not what it means. It means revealing. Think of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, where God allows Isaiah to look into the throne room of God, God reveals what happens in the throne room of God. Think about the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1, where God allows Ezekiel to see the throne room of God. God reveals what that looks like. Think of Daniel, where Daniel is allowed in God's plan to see the Ancient of Days. These are all apocryphal literature, examples of apocryphal literature. They are revealing truth that you cannot see on your own. It's impossible to see on your own. Only when God does a supernatural work does this ever occur. This is not going to happen to you. All right? This is not going to happen to you. In the Revelation chapter 22, it makes it very clear that this is wrapped up. This is the end of the inspiration of God's Word. This is it. We have all that we need. Now, I told you I want to give you a little taste of eschatology along the way. I want to give you one example of that. And, and it, put the slide up on the screen for me. Um, so one of the things that happens throughout the book of Revelation is God's wrath is poured upon the world. And that sounds pretty scary, and it should be. It should be. But one of the things I want us to understand is we, as we look forward into what God is going to do in the future, at some time that we don't know when it is, but we know that it's next, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the world. Why? Why? The reason is that God, there's coming a time in the future 
where God knows in his sovereignty knows that time as we know it is coming to an end and the time is near, Scripture says. And so the Lord in one last ditch effort tries to reveal to mankind that this world doesn't satisfy, that this world is not what it's about. And so the Lord brings a a, a whole host of events we talked about those last week. They're, they're identified as seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. Okay, and don't let that freak you out. It's just terminology of the day. It's just pictures of the first century of things that people would have known. But one of the things I want to I point out to you is the different kinds of wrath that you do see of God. It's not just for the end days. It's going on all over the place. I mean, you start out with eternal wrath. What is eternal wrath? Eternal wrath is sinners, unforgiven, separated from God forever. That's a wrath we can understand. There's calamitous wrath. What is that? There'll be things like the flood during Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God brings a, a, great, a great event into, a, into an area to try to pull people back to himself. We have consequential wrath. You know what that is? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. If you sow to please the sinful nature, you will reap from that sinful nature. We all can understand that, right? We tell our kids that all the time, hopefully. Maybe not in those exact words, but we teach them that, that principle. There's the wrath of God's abandonment. You find that in Romans chapter 1. That there comes a time where God says, fine, you can, you can have it. If you want sin and all of its fun and all of its glory, take it. There was a time when God does that. But what we're, gonna, what we're going to peek at at times is something called the eschatological wrath. I want to show you it in the book of Revelation. Then we're going to go back to chapter 1. This is just a taste. This is just a taste, okay? Go to Revelation chapter 6. I might have this for the screen. Revelation chapter 6. Now, this is the final of the seal judgments. There's been seven judgments rained upon the world. Okay? Now, you might think, man, if people are experiencing these horrible times, certainly they'll cry out to God. I mean, think of 9-11. Remember 9-11 when, when, you know, the whole world was all excited about the Lord. We're all going to call out to God. Remember that? And it went away in like a day. Remember? Events will happen in our world, and it will, it will cause people to kind of look up from the, the trinkets of the day and maybe just for a moment think about eternity. And I hope you're there. I hope you're there ready to speak truth to them. Because the moment passes real quick. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse number 15. Think about how real this is, how, how much you could see this happening. It says, then the kings of the earth. Now, remember, there's been all this wrath poured upon the world. It's not done. But the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Store up my gasoline. Be afraid of what's going to happen. Maybe it's out of control. 
calling to the mountains and to the rocks. So now these people who are hiding in the caves, they're calling to the rocks and the mountains, and they're saying, fall on us and hide us. Look what they say, though. Think about what they say. From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? And I want you to notice it's in quotes. Who's talking? Who is that? It's the kings and the generals and the leaders. They know it's from God. And they will not turn. How is this possible? How, they know clearly what this is being caused by. You can read chapter 6 on your own time and see what's happening. And they know clearly where it's from. And they do not turn. They do not turn. A taste of eschatology. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. Now let's bring some hope to our situation. Let's bring some hope to our situation. So in Revelation chapter 1, at verse number 9, John kind of steps into the scene here, all right? And he identifies himself by the name of John. And we know that this is the apostle John. We, we know that this is the, the good friend of Jesus, the follower of Jesus, that he'd been with Jesus, that he knew Jesus. And I want us to look at John's situation. And what I want to do is kind of compare it to our present John's situation connected with our presence, all right? Verse number one. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience, patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John here is the author. John. He's on this island, this rock island, about five miles wide, ten miles long, in the middle of the sea. He's there. It's a penal colony. He's there as a slave working in the mines. He's probably at least 80 years of age. Think about that. And this is not a time when people live to be hundreds of years old, like back in the early days before the flood. No, no. People die at age 80 and 90 in, in the first century, of course. And so here he is on this island. He's been banished there by the Roman government. We know why, for simply being a gospel bearer. He's a witness for Jesus. The Romans, they would do this often. They had many, many, they had over a hundred of these penal colonies. They would send people. They didn't want to make John a martyr, because then he would be forever appreciated and admired. So instead, they took this leader of the church, and they send him to the island Patmos. This is John's situation. I'm going to compare it to our present. You know, John had high expectations. I mean, think about John on this island. He's working in the mine, okay? This is not what he expected to happen. You go back to Mark chapter 10. Back when Jesus was on the earth during his earthly ministry, James and John, brothers, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, um, hey, can you do us a favor? Remember the question they asked Jesus? James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, 
When you set up your kingdom, because like it's going to happen any moment, right? When you set up your kingdom, can you let us sit like on your right and your left? Whoever's talking, you know they meant themselves. You know, me on your right and little brother here on your left. This was their expectation. In Acts chapter 1, they, they, they're with Jesus and they say, Jesus, okay, you've resurrected, you beat death. Are you now going to restore your kingdom? They have high expectations for what's going to happen. You read through the book of Acts, Peter and John, our author, are doing amazing things for the Lord. People are being healed, thousands of people being saved. I mean, you read through the book of Acts, it's amazing what's happening through the apostle John. High expectations for what's going to happen. And it doesn't end there. As John grows and matures in Christ, tradition Faithful tradition tells us that he was essential in the start and the development of the church in Ephesus. So he's pastoring in Ephesus, and it's growing and and maturing and sending out people, and they plant churches all over the Asia Minor community. High expectations. But then tragedy strikes. Listen what happened to the church and. And get yourself there. Get yourself there. Persecution comes by the hands of the Jewish authorities, by the hand of the Gentile authorities, by the Roman authorities. In about the year 60, the emperor Nero kills Peter and Paul. Kills them both. And and it really becomes kind of a pastime of, of the Roman leaders to kill Christians. It doesn't end there. Domitian becomes emperor in the year 81. And now, wicked, wicked things. I mean, they've been done under Nero, but it honestly takes another level when Domitian takes over the Roman Empire. And he is the one who, who rounds up, who, who gets all the leaders, including the Apostle John, and places them on an island. Not only is persecution happening, but, but the world affairs of the day have got to rattle John. The Romans in 70 A.D. had had enough of the Jewish people. And so they started a genocide that would just blow our minds of what they did to to the nation of Israel. Not just to Jerusalem, which they ransacked. They say that prior to the 70 A.D., the, the area was covered with trees. But the Romans cut down all the trees to crucify the Jewish people. Likely tens of thousands, if not more, of the Jewish men, women, and children crucified by the Romans. They go out through the whole region and really bring a genocide into the community. And on top of that, what we're going to see as we study the book of Revelation is the churches are defecting. The churches are defecting and leaving the truth of the gospel and permitting rampant sin in their midst. Sexual sin, just unbelievable sin, and saying nothing about it. 
There's this idea that people get that if we could just go back to the first church days, if we could just go back to the early church, why then we'll be right. If we could just land where the early church was, we'll be in good shape. You are wrong if you think that. You are wrong. You don't understand church history if that's your belief. Bad doctrine, bad practice, it was a mess. And John sees all of this. I wonder how he felt. We know how he felt. He tells us. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother, so a fellow believer. That's what that means. doesn't mean that they're blood relatives. It means that we are believers. Your brother and partner. Now that word is, is traced back to the word koinonia, Okay? And it means that we are in the same group. We have fellowship with one another. A friend of mine said, think of two fellows in a ship. Two fellows in a ship. We're together. So they're together in this ship. Okay, So brother and partner in three things. So we are partnering together in three things. You know what they are? Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. We are in this same ship together tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. What does that mean? Here's what John is trying to explain. We are right now, where we are is tribulation, difficulty. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. That is what we are in. This world is opposed to Christ. It is. And his followers Paul said this before his head was cut off. He said this. In fact, all who, who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a conditional statement. If we live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then we will suffer persecution. If one, then the other. It's guaranteed. This is the world that we all live in. And that's what he is referring to. But we're not just in this koinonia in our tribulation. We're also in this koinonia in the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now the eyes are going to the future. When you see the word kingdom, be careful. Be careful in how you read that. Kingdom is not something that happens inside of your heart. No. Kingdom implies a king. Kingdom implies royalty. Kingdom implies a place. When he says kingdom, he's thinking of Jesus ruling on the earth. So here's what he's saying. Right now, we are in tribulation. We are being beat down by all things around us. I know it's hard. He's on an island digging in the mine. He's 90 years old. He's probably cold, naked, and hungry. He's sent there to die. Tribulation. But his heart and his mind is thinking of the kingdom, that Jesus is one day going to come again and going to establish his kingdom on earth. So we're a fellowship in that. We have a partnership in that. But that's not the only partnership. There's a third partnership. See it? You see it? All combined by the conjunction and. 
So they're equally valid. They're equally valid. Fellowship in tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. What does that mean? This is the time in between. This is the space in between. Now I'm in tribulation. I look forward to a kingdom, but I got all this life between now and then. I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know what, I don't know what the end game is. I don't know what year it's going to happen. I don't know what place it's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to live till Jesus comes back. I don't know if I'm going to die on the way home today, but until I do, I am going to patiently endure. You know what the word endure means? It's a beautiful word. Endure means this. If I were really, really strong, it'd be better. It means to remain under. That's what the word endure means. This is the call of eschatology, folks. This is why we have the book of Revelation. It is all spinning around us. It's difficult. But we are looking forward to the kingdom, and in the midst of this, we will patiently endure. That's why the book of Revelation is given. So you don't throw in the towel. So you don't give up. So you don't run to the mountain and find a cave and climb down inside. But you patiently endure living out God's purpose for your life. Continuing to live as a witness for Christ. Continue to live for Jesus. Continue to know that he's coming one day. But until he comes, I will patiently endure through his strength. Honestly, that verse right there, verse number nine, is the reason for the book of Revelation. That's it. That's it. It's not to figure out who the Antichrist is and what the 666 mean and where is the battle of Armageddon and what year is it going to happen. That's not what it's about. God is showing us no matter what. I got it. I got it. Look how he brings that that truth for us. First, he gives him some instruction, okay? So he's on this island, okay, I want to count the word of God a testimony. I was in this spirit on the Lord's day. Now, that's nothing magical, okay? All that means, well, it actually, it is supernatural, but it's not something that you and I can recreate. You're not going to go home today and, and do this and hear from God. All this means is this is, this, is, this is beyond your human ability to know what's happened. God has inspired his word. It's a miracle. It's been revealed to John. Okay, that's what that is. He's in the Lord's spirit this day. Okay, where am I? Hold on. Yes, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, and it said this, verse 11. This really excites me, what the, what the voice says to him. The voice says, write. Write what you see. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. You say, well, why is that exciting, Lo? I don't quite get it. Notice what he didn't say. He did not say, elect a new leader. He did not say, figure out how to fix all the social problems in the world. He did not say, buy more ammunition. That's not what he said. He said, you write. The Word of God is the answer to our turmoil. That's what it is. Write what you see. 
You want to know what to do when the world seems to be spinning out of control? You go to the Word of God. That's what you do. Don't go to CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or any other version you want to look at. You know what they're going to do to you? That all it takes is one person to start a mob. That's all, that's all it takes. You know, they want your click. They want your click. That's all they want. So they cast this stuff out in front of you. Click here, click here, click here. Look at this, look at this. Worry, 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 worry. Jesus said, write. Write what you see. That's John's instruction, to write. Write this down. I want to look at verse number 19 while we're here, because I probably won't have time when I get there. Look at verse number 19. Look what he tells him to write. Verse number 19, it says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. Write the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. Tell them what you saw, John. Tell them what you saw. Tell them what you saw. Write the things that are. That's chapters 2 and 3. That's the present day for John. And then write the things that will be in the future. That's the rest of the book, chapter 4 through the end. Okay? So there, I, I finally hit that. So he has this vision. There's, there's 13 of these visions in the book of Revelation. Twelve times he tells John to write it down. One time, by the way, in Revelation chapter 10, verse number 4, he tells him not to write it down. Interesting. I don't know why, but he just does. And we know here that John takes this book to the seven churches. So poor John, I guess he wrote this out by hand seven times. Man, I bet his wrist was killing him. And he goes around this circuit through the seven churches that we're going to start looking at starting next week. But let's move a little quickly now. Go to verse number 12. So he says, the Lord Jesus, now going to look at the Lord Jesus and our future. He turned and looked to see the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of lampstands, one like a son of man. Now that is a power-packed phrase, folks. The son, like the son of man. So what this means is he looks like a human, but he's not human. This traces back to Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel identifies the Son of Man as the Ancient of Days. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself. This is what Jesus called himself more than anything else. He, he most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. What did it mean? It meant he was in the flesh. He incarnated himself to come and be like his brothers in every way, tempted in every way, but yet without sin. So one like the Son of Man. But then John describes what he sees. Now, this is kind of odd to us. We'll go quickly through it. This is, this is all visual pictures that would have made perfect sense in John's day. To you, you're picturing like a bathrobe and like a Boy Scout sash or something. I don't know. But that's not what that meant in that day. That's not what this means. Let's walk through it, and, I'll, and all along the way, I'll, 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 I'll share some thoughts. So he, looks, he sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, royalty, royalty, and with a golden sash, priesthood, priesthood. These are images that, that bring this to mind. A royal priest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, wisdom of age. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. What does flame of fire do? Burns up anything that should not last. His gaze, his omniscient gaze, sees to our heart and sees every deed, every thought that we have. Like a burning fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Bronze would have been a a metal of great strength in that day. A king would literally stand on his enemy, meaning his, his foot on his neck, meaning that I conquered you. This burnished bronze, he's a conqueror. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the earth. He's the king of the universe. Refined in a furnace, his voice was like the roar of many waters. There's power in his voice. There's power in his word. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, that seems really strange to us, and it probably seemed a little strange to John. The reason why I think that is because Jesus tells him what it means. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So John sees Jesus standing among seven lampstands, and in his hand are seven stars. Jesus is in the midst of his church. That's what this is. Jesus explains it in verse number 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these are the seven stars of the angel of the seven churches. And the seven, seven lampstands are the seven churches. These churches that the church of Ephesus very likely started, which John is the one that very likely started the church in Ephesus. And they are the lampstands. They're to take the light to the world. Jesus loves his church. It's his method. It's his means. You're not here just to be a club. This is his intention. This is how he's going to work. Jesus Christ is ruling. And when John sees him in verse number 17, he falls at his feet as though dead. A common response to the person of Christ. A common response to the resurrected Christ. Let's look at what God does here, his method and what he calls us to. First of all, he lays his right hand on him. He says the same thing he would say to you if you're in Jesus. This is the same thing that Jesus would say to you if you're in him. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I mean, what is man's greatest fear? I mean, really, was it, was, it not, was it Y2K? Was that really our greatest fear? No, it wasn't Y2K. It was the death that we were afraid might chase us down when we couldn't, what, turn on our coffee machine or whatever. That's what it is. And it's not just death, meaning that your heart stops. It's eternal death. That's the fear. Fear not, he says. Jesus does. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Go to either extreme. I'm there. Living one, I died and behold, I am now alive. By the way, that is a great verse to answer any cultist with. Jehovah Witness comes to your door. Read to them this passage. 
I am the Alpha, the first and the last, the living one. Ask them, who is that? They'll say, well, that's Jehovah. That's right. That's Jehovah. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Tell me. JW, tell me. When did Jehovah die? No answer. No answer. That's right. Because it's Jesus. And he is God. The wrath of God is not something that we fear anymore in Christ. But I want you to see more than that. Verse number 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. See why I dealt with it earlier. I knew I'd run out of time. Verse number 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Okay, now comes one of these unique times. Where as a pastor, I got to talk about myself. And I do this with all humility. But I do it because it is the word of God. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, that's a little confusing to us. Angel, what is, what is the deal with that? Let me tell you just a little bit of an insight on the word angel. Angel is a transliteration of Greek. Now, that might not mean much to you, but here's what all that means. You take the Greek word angel and you make, it's angelos in Greek. You make the A, an A, an N, an N, a G, a G, an E, an E, and an L, an L. We do that with a few words. Angel, baptism, Christ, deacon. You know why we do that with those words? Because we don't have any other reference point other than the Bible. How do you describe a deacon other than D-E-A-C-O-N from the Greek word deacon? What does that mean to us? It means that it's very hard for us to understand what the word angel means. Angel simply means messenger. That's all it means. Most of the time in the Bible, it's a divine messenger. The angel Gabriel comes. But that's not the only time. Messengers came to Rahab and warned her, according to James chapter 2. Messengers came, from John, came to John the Baptist and told him that Jesus was doing this and this and that. Who is the angel of the church? Who is the messenger of the church? Right now, in this moment, it's me. For this church, it's whoever it is that comes up here and preaches God's word. Next week, it'll be Pastor Brock. And he'll walk up here and he will be the messenger to the church of Center Point. And we need to understand something. When Jesus wanted to describe these messengers of the church, he holds them in his hands. He holds the seven messengers of these seven churches in his hands. I am not a motivational speaker. I am not here to tickle ears. I am not here to tell you what you want to hear. I am not here to entertain you. I am here to simply be a messenger. To explain what the Bible says. That's my only role. 
That's my only rule. That's all I am. I'm a billboard. I'm a sign. I'm just somebody saying, yeah, this is what he said. Yeah, this is what he said. That's all I am. I'm a go-between. I'm a pipe. I'm a piece of conduit. I'm a wire. That's all this is. But don't mess with the stars. And don't mess with his lampstands. And just because somebody puts the word pastor in front of their name doesn't mean that they're one of his messengers. Careful what you listen to. Be careful what you hear. I mean, how much false does it take for it to be a false messenger? How much are we going to allow in before we say, that's not an accurate messenger? How much are we going to allow in before we say, that's, that's not a star. I don't trust that star. That star is not from God. Listen, there's all kinds of people out there claiming to have words from God. Especially now that we have the internet and podcast and, and everything else. And I mean, you, can, you will get in your car now and jump in the, and you'll ride down the road and the radio will be on and somebody will come on there. Some wacko will tell you things that you know aren't true. And there are books, 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 books being sold, filled with garbage from people that never were in his hands. Be careful. Be careful. And listen, let me tell you, I'm out of time, but let me tell you. This messenger ever says something that you know isn't true, or that messenger, or that one, or that one, you come. And you correct. Do it with grace. Understand that we're just human. Okay, we make mistakes. But the church is his method. The pastor teachers are his tools. The word of God is the means And the gospel is the message. Be encouraged today. Things are not spinning out of control. Okay? I don't know what the future holds for us. I don't know. What I mean, could if we'd have bumped into John in the year sixty and said, So what do you think, John? You're gonna end up, you know, on a on a desert deserted island as a slave down in the mines? He just said, No, man, no, God is working. You should see this. But what we learn in studying the book of Revelation is no matter what comes our way, God is ruling and we can trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your control. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way you've worked in our lives. Father, would you just allow us to continue to chase after you, after your word, after your truth, after your spirit, Lord? Thank you that you are in control of all things. From Y2K to our present struggles, all the way back to the island of Patmos, Lord, you're ruling, you're loving. Father, go with us today and let us be strong, strong witnesses for you that show a world that we have hope and that hope is in you. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.